Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber, and uh, we have another show. I literally just finished another chat, but um, I'm all over it. Let's let's get this done. Let's go deep. Uh, let's Wagon Wheel. So for those who don't know, Wagon Wheel is a show where we answer questions uh, from the audience, and uh, generally they're about very wide and varying topics when it comes to cricket and everything else. So um, uh, the best way of um, um, getting started is always with our Patreon subscribers. If you're not subscribed to us on Patreon, uh, what are you doing with your? No, that's okay. Uh, but you can, and one of the perks at the or whatever the first class and above level is that you get to um, ask questions on this very show. HEL Tech brings you this show, and they're the only ones who love data well more than I do. James says, if you could apply modern technology and analysis to cricket phenomenon for the past, what would you pick? Some examples might be DRS for the last ball of the 1986 Tide Test, modern speed guns for Larwood. Uh, that would solve a lot of problems, actually. Um, uh, and ball by ball data for a battle like Trump, Bradman, so, uh, etc. There's a techno. Well, we there's a technology that's not quite in cricket yet, but it will be over the next couple of years. But um, it works on the amount of um, revolutions that a ball makes. I think it's called Repsodo. It's a baseball technology, and I don't think anyone's using it in cricket yet, but I know Repsoto have been looking at making it for cricket teams, um, and certainly other companies are looking at doing the same thing. I'd love to go back and see what kind of revolutions um, old spinners and old seam bowlers put on the ball, especially the bowlers like Bob Applegard and Sid Barnes, to know how much they were actually putting on the ball. But if you just want to solve issues within cricket, uh, I would definitely just go back with the speed gun. And just prove that those bowlers were not bowling 90 miles an hour just so that we could get it done. I, except for Tomo. Tomo definitely bowled 90 miles an hour. But, you know, for some of the others, without doubt, not, not the case. Scott says, is the fact that skills like keeping, pure keeping, um, and fielding are hard to quantify the reasons that they are underrated skills? At least in my opinion, they're underrated. I don't know if fielding is that underrated. Like someone who's worked a lot in T20 cricket, like there was a lot of bias towards good movers in the field. So I'm not sure that that is correct, Scott, but certainly with wicketkeeping. The reason that wicketkeeping has got worse is because we don't have a metric of which to correctly judge it on. You know, the old uh, the, the catch and drops doesn't work because some wicketkeepers go for catches that others don't go for. And then you've also got Asian wicketkeepers usually look worse than everyone else because they're at the stumps more and so they drop more catches than anyone else and miss more stumpings generally than anyone else. Um, so... Yeah, I think that is, for me, uh, a huge... Uh, and I've talked to teams about it and how to get better at it, but it would cost money, and I don't think anyone thinks it's worth investing. Uh, eventually, someone will, but at the moment, no one does. Sandip says, is Warner playing all three tests against Pakistan? I don't believe so, is he? I think he... Isn't he just playing um, the SCG... Or when is the SCG test? I would have to ha actually have a look at that. Um, but I don't, I don't believe so. Um, I think... Australia, Pakistan. Where are we? Uh, oh, yeah, no, he might be playing all three tests because that last one is in Sydney. If, well, if my two-second Google is correct, um, which it may not be. Uh, and do you see him retiring from World Cup? Uh, if Australia wins this World Cup, do you see him retiring from ODS? I think he already has retired from ODS at the end of this World Cup, hasn't he? I think he made it pretty clear that he's going to play in this World Cup 
then he was going to play in that test series and then he was going to play i uh, try and play t20s um until the next world cup I, I was at the press conference where he said it i mean he was a bit casual the way he said it but I, that was the the feeling that i got so it wasn't so much a I am going to retire from ODI cricket at the end of this World Cup, but I couldn't see any reason why we'd continue to play ODIs after this unless he wanted to do it to keep his eye in for the, the T20 World Cup. But I would assume that whichever Australia's last game is will be Warner's last game, um, unless I'm then told otherwise. Hamza says, how complicated is cricket groundsmanship really? Uh, it's quite complicated because you know, there's art science to it, but then um, there's also obviously like an art to it as well. Um, you have, you know, if you're trying to prepare something that is safe, that then also has a certain character to it, um, that you may want to, you know, make it last a certain way or degrade a certain way, you know, the, the levels of skills just keep going up the further you go. I think there are probably some wickets that, you know, a bunch of us could roll and they'd be quite good. Uh, but, you know, to really understand what you're doing, it takes a long time and there's a lot of different um, aspects to it as well. Um, I think science has certainly got a lot more involved in it in recent times. If, if you want to know how hard it is, Hamza, find an area with really good turf and start rolling it a bunch of times and then get a 90-mile-an-hour bowler to come in and bowl on it. Um, you can roll it as many times as you want. Um, chances are it's not going to be safe for anyone to ban on. Like it, you know, and we've seen that before. We've seen that in World Cups, um, uh, you know, the, the Albury game, uh, England-Zimbabwe. Was it Albury? Yeah, I think it was Albury. Um, you know, we've seen, and, and that's happened in other um, outground venues at times uh, in World Cups specifically when everyone's like, well, you know, we've got a cricket pitch here and it's pretty good. But when you get elite players on it, it looks a lot different, especially elite fast bowlers on it. So it's not an easy uh, um, thing to do. Um, and we see people get it wrong all the time. So if it was easy, it would be, um, <laughs> uh, our pitches would be better, right? Scott says, a somewhat common opinion I've seen is that Ricky Ponting is a good man manager, but a weak captain tactically, uh, with Edge Bassett and post-worn spinner treatment cited, uh, or even a bad captain who happened to have an incredible team. However, listening to his commentary or hearing players talk about his coaching, he seems like one of the smartest men in cricket. How much truth is there to the idea that he was a tactically bad captain, and how much did it matter for that Australian team? So th th the way that you can tell that a lot of this is, like, commentary isn't um, captaincy. And it's a really important, oh, I sound really smart on, on commentary. Um, and when I've captained, you know, I've had some success, but I've also had monumental failures, right? Like it's a completely different thing. You're taken out of the situation. You are judging it in, in a different way. Ponting was a very reactive captain and he was a very defensive minded captain in, in, in many ways. And that plays very poorly on TV from a, from a tactical point of view. But if you want to know the difference, listen to Mark Taylor commentate who was thought of as a genius captain, and listen to Ricky Ponting com commentate, he was seen as an idiot captain, right? Ponting sounds smarter. Sounds like he reads the game better. Um, you know, the way he talks about the game is much more enlightened and open and interesting than what Mark Taylor does. And Mark Taylor's never been a particularly great commentator. But Mark Taylor did things on the field that were inventive. Um, he, he was ahead of the game. Ponting was behind the game. When commentary, you're behind the game, naturally, right? It's not to say that, you know, as a, and as a commentator, you're not worried about whether the bowlers are tired. You're not worried about if this bowler doesn't like coming up from this area of the, of the hill. Um, you're, you've got your mind on all these different uh, uh, factors as a, as a captain that you don't have as a commentator. So as a commentator, it's more a basic kind of read. doesn't mean that, you know, um, that Taylor is... Uh, and Taylor's not very good at communicating those things. He's become a better commentator over the years, but the genius that we saw of him as a captain has never really come over. And we see really smart players who can't commentate. So I think it's really important to know how different those two things are, right, to start with. And if you are, if you are a ca captain of a very good team, and specifically of a team that has a lot of strike bowling options, and you're defensive, you're still going to get good results. And I think that's what you saw of Ponting. Where you need to be more inventive, right, is when your team is not quite at that level and you need to throw some things out there and, and try some other options and everything else. Um, and Australia didn't really need that. They just kind of needed someone to do the toss and make sure that McGrath bowled when he was fit and not tired and Warren would bowl and then maybe you would change ends with him occasionally and you'd listen to what he had to say and go with some of his ideas. Gillespie would bowl up, up into the wind and then with the wind 
you know, wh whichever option um, that worked best for, from the McGrath end. And then you had a quick bowler in Brett Lee. So games a lot easier when you can do those things. But also, you don't want to get in the way of that. In some ways, you could argue that Steve Waugh was a much more aggressive captain, but I'm not sure he always got the best out of Shane Warne because S Steve Waugh, probably a little bit more tactically astute at times, but he was so aggressive with what he did. It was all about seam bowling and five slips, and he kind of used Warne at times as a, as a holding bowler. It's like, well, you've got one of the great weapons of all time. You don't Warne's ability to strike and um, hold at the same time was part of the genius of him, and the same with McGrath. You didn't really need to do that. McGraw would have been fantastic with a Ponting field and with a Steve Waugh field, right? Um, and the same with McGraw, uh, same with Warren. So, yeah, I, I just think there's, a, you know, the way we talk about captaincy is quite honestly mostly stupid. Hampson says, Aussie quick, Millie Illingworth has Tomo's load up. And it made me wonder, why don't more quicks adopt it? Putting uh, your front leg down with more force would make the ball travel faster, right? Um, or is it really harsh on the It's Dreadfully harsh on the net. Um, I haven't seen enough of her. I haven't really thought about that, um, actually. I'm, I have to look at some clip. Um, so I would argue, Hamza, that there is a truth in what you've said here that is really interesting, which is that perhaps the two greatest outliers in cricket, and you, maybe you could throw three if you want to put Murali in here, but that's a bit more contentious because of uh, the, the early chucking calls. But the, certainly the two greatest outliers in cricket would be Tomo's speed and Bradman's batting. We really haven't seen anyone copy Bradman's technique, and we never really saw anyone copy Tomo's technique. Does that suggest to you that the sort of MCC um, uh, uh, cricket coaching book, I forget what it's called, I've got a copy of it somewhere here, but the famous MCC coaching uh, manual actually wasn't wasn't really preparing cricketers for be the to be the best they could be you know the old get your front leg down as far as possible and get your elbow above it no, you can't even do that to a 90 mile an hour bowler right and to be fair the coaching manual was eventually scrapped for that reason right but it has held on and st people still do coach in that particular way um, i was lucky enough to be coached by my father who kind of believed that whatever was effective for you you should continue to do and so we had a lot of random cricketers at our club who other clubs thought were very bad and then would go out to their bowling or couldn't get their couldn't get them out when they batted and everything else um but it, you know with with still the understanding of what the basics were and everything else um i think most people kind of teach the basics without really thinking about why you might need to do them and everything else um but i, I look i i don't know if anyone else can do Tomo's action. In the same way, I don't know if anyone else would have actually been able to perfect Murali's action, or even if they copied Bradman piece by piece, they would have been able to do it. Maybe these guys are physical outliers, right? Um, you know, Tomo's, his physicality, um, you know, his elasticity was just unrivaled. Um, and maybe it's a hard action to, you know, work out when you're a kid or anything else. I know that people have certainly done it. Uh, they, the um, Aussie rules footballer Dermot Perrodin used to bowl like Jeff Thompson. I, I don't think I ever faced anyone in a club game who really bowled like him, though, with that kind of action. And considering the generation, I grew up in a generation where I should have been facing you know, older bowlers with that action. I can't remember anyone really ever doing it. Um, so it is, I think a lot of it has to do with coaching. Also, I don't always think we, in cricket, focus on the most important things. Partly maybe um, the, the coaching manual, while trying to do the right thing, perhaps did the wrong thing. Satchmo says, do you think the ECB will try to put more focus on 50 overside after this tournament or will it carry on sidelining it? Well, there would be no reason to, right? Like, why would you now? You would, I, the only difference would be if they really want to take the Champions Trophy seriously. And to be honest, it's very rare teams take the trophy. This is one of the reasons why I don't take it seriously. The teams don't take it seriously, right? Biggest secret in cricket is that the teams, you know, they turn up for it sometimes. And occasionally you'll get a team who will take it really seriously, but it's very rare. Um, if there is going to be another 50 over World Cup, then obviously we would expect to see England uh, make sure that they're playing their best ODI team two years out rather than a few months out. Um, anyone who's going to unretire will have to unretire quite early, put it that way. But I can't imagine why they would suddenly start focusing on 50 over cricket when they're playing Test cricket and there's a T20 World Cup beforehand. Like It would not make any sense to me to do that. GD says, based on the World Cup League phase only, if you had to build a 25-man roster, I'm already 
all in on this. Depth chart style for all conditions. Who would you pick for what roles? Ignore injuries, but the players must have played at least one game. You want to cover all bases. Uh, I mean, the problem is that if I did a depth chart here, GD, we'd be going absolutely forever. Um, if you want a left arm seam, you would have Marco Janssen as your first choice. You'd have Matashankar as your second choice, and then you'd have Bolt and Shaheen um, as three and four. Am I missing any other left armers? Oh, where does David Willey go in there? Probably had a better tournament than the other guys, but Matashankar and Janssen took more new ball wickets, and the other two guys were better later on. So if you had a left armers who can bat a little bit, he'd be at the top of that. that. This is why it's very hard for me to do a depth chart, because once I get to that level, because you'd have Janssen, number one, on the left arm seamers who can bat, with David Willey behind him. And then you'd have um, Janssen, Matashanka, probably Bolt, Shaheen, and then Willie on uh, the frontline bowlers. Uh, the level of detail I would go, like the same with Jadeja. Jadeja would be quite high up the spin bowlers, but then he'd also be quite high. He'd probably be the first on left arm finger spinners ahead of Maharaj and Santner, who were both really good, but I think Jadeja was still better. And But also he would then be on number one of spin bowling all-rounders, you know, well ahead of Nabi, roll off maybe not even anymore santa would be on that list but lower down um yeah i think i had and i haven't done this properly yet and i'll probably do a video on it one day but there's about in, in t20 cricket and i haven't done this one day but very similar for one day there's about 28 different player types and once you start to actually break things down you realize how deep uh, the game is and how specialized certain little bits of the game are and how important they are and then you need to work out what they're their second skill might be. So we talked about, you know, someone asked about Kyle Jameson in the previous show. So Kyle Jameson, you would say his main skill is bowling with the brand new ball and the power play. His second main skill might be being a really good number eight or number seven, or a decent, more handy number seven, but a really good number eight, right? And his third skill might be bowling bounces in the middle. And his fourth skill might be giving the ball at the death and hoping he doesn't get absolutely smashed everywhere. Josh says, two weeks ago, I asked about my team of time travelers trying to avenge previous attempts and win the 2015, 2019, 2023 World Cups um, in a row versus the host nations. I was a bit ambitious trying to get part-time as the bowl 20 overs. Same question, but with a more balanced side. All right. Woo. He's not going to let this one go, Josh. Guptal in 2015, Ravindra in 2023. Uh, okay, yep. Uh, Williamson in 19. That's fine. Mitchell in 23. Makes sense. McCullum. So you got McCullum batting five. And you got Phillips at six. Hmm. I think I could only fit one of those in my side, but okay, we can do this. You got Bolt, Ferguson, Vittori, Sant. Now, see, you've still got a part timer, so there's no way they don't have another specialist in that, do they? Okay, so there's not much you can do about that. Okay, that's fine. Uh, you got Bolt, 2015. You got Ferguson, 2019. You've got Vittori. Okay, so. Um, my worry is that you've got two defensive bowlers in Santner and Vittori, and you don't have a second new ball bowler. I still wonder if this team... I'm not saying I can't win one of those World Cups, but you see, I think you see my point. And this goes back to the, the previous question on depth charts, right? Like, So let's have a look at this team. You have... You have Bolt who can take the new ball. You have... Lockie, he doesn't want to take the new ball and wants to bowl in the middle. But now, in order to get this incredible long batting lineup and the extra spinner in, you haven't made a mistake here. But in order to do that, you've got two guys who are incredibly similar, who both spin the ball in the same direction. Both want to bat around number seven, number eight. Maybe you can fit Vittoria. I think you've got Vittoria down a little bit low. He's certainly a better bat than Santa. But, you know, so you've now got overlap in a position. All right? You would have been better off here to have Henry in this, in this, and have the slightly weak batting, and then have either Vittorio or Santner, depending on on who your wish is in that in in that position. Um, uh, so again, and McCullum and Phillips, I would say is positional overlap. You want either McCullum or if you're talking about a dream team, you want either McCullum or Phillips to bat at number six and to play the Josh Butler 2019 role, right? Um, David Miller role, right? But it can win some of these World Cups, I think, but. It's not, it's still not, you still haven't quite nailed it for me, Josh. Rudra says, what is one spell of bowling that you remember as being amazing, but you don't feel people ever talk about enough? Um, I remember watching Ishant Sharma taking out England's middle order at Edgbaston in 2018. There's, there's probably a bunch of these um, that I would say 
all are Ryan Harris. I would say Ryan Harris at the uh, on one knee. I, I get at Port Elizabeth or um, Guokpa, whatever it's called now. I, I haven't pronounced that right, have I? But I gave it a go. Um, um, Paul, uh, yeah, Ryan Harris there. Ryan Harris in Durham, which almost brought Australia back into a test match they didn't deserve to be. And all of Ryan Harris from the Mitchell Johnson um, sum up, where arguably bowled better than Mitchell Johnson, got out all the top order. And Mitchell Johnson was incredible. But Ryan Harris was something else in that. Um, those are ones that instantly all come to my head as no one ever talks about them. Um, and really, they really should be talked about. Hmm. What else would I add to that list? And it's weird to have an Australian cricketer that isn't hyped up, but he just quite didn't quite get there. That's the, that's the one that really come. Those are the ones that really come to mind. I'm trying to think if there's another bowler. There's some Kemar Roach spells that I I don't think Kemar Roach gets anywhere near the respect he should have. Early in his career, he was almost unplayable. Gets in the car accident, comes back as a completely different bowler, and was had some incredible spells after that as well. Um, there's a series he played against Australia where I don't know how the Australians were supposed to play him, right? And some of the spells I've seen him bowl to left-handers, just what are you supposed to do to those Kemar Roach spells? So those are the two bowls that instantly come to mind. I just don't think they get the respect that they should get. And we're not talking about one spell. We're talking about multiple spells. Aditya says, which overall tournament batting performance in World Cups would you rate as the best? And Dilker in 96 and 03, AB in 2015, Sharma, Shakib, Warner in 2019. What? How have you misspelled Lance Klusner so many times in a row? Um, I've never had a, I would have to go back and have a look at where they made the runs, who they made them against, when they made it against them. So Dilker in 2003 was certainly up there. AB, I'd have to go back and see who he made the runs against in that tournament. Uh, Sharma, Shakib, and Warner are all fantastic in 2019. I don't think any of those off the top of my head go past Tendulkar in 03, though. Um, Tendulkar in 06 was great. I mean, Aravinder in 06 was pretty fantastic as well, by the way. He doesn't have as many runs overall, but partly because Sri Lanka played two games less. Well, actually, one game less than Tendulkar did. Um, but as a semi-final, final package, he's pretty good in the rest of the tournament, too. Aravinder was absolutely flying. Um, so that's one I think you've missed. Well, what, what about Martin Crow in 92 as well? Um, I'm trying to remember his full tournament. I've got a feeling he was fantastic in that tournament. Ruja says, do you have a favorite or some silly stats like Tendulkar having more ODI fifers to warn? Um, hmm. Stats. Um, I probably do. I can't think of any off the top of my head, Ruja, that like, I mean, that's a really good one, right? Uh, I think, is it Mike Hendrick has the most wickets ever for someone never to take a five-wicket haul? Is that right? And I talked to him about this. He passed away uh, recently. I should have got him on the podcast. Um, I had a couple of great nights with him. Uh, no, he only took 87 wickets. It might not be him I'm thinking of. There's someone else. Um, I mean, there's some great things like, you know, the MCC... Um, you know, honors board, Ajit Akaka is on as a batter and Marcus North is on as a bowler. Um, so there's some great little things there. I think, Greg, isn't it Greg Matthews? Greg Matthews uh, it was playing pick for Australia as a spinner and he averaged 44 with the bat and 48 with the ball. And so he has a, a minus four differential, which makes him sound like pretty decent all-rounder. Um, and, and managed to take 61 wickets in 33 test matches as a bowler. Um, there's always something about that record that just sticks out to me as something so uh, bizarre. Um, but yeah, I can't, I'm sure there are hundreds, but I can't think of any else off the top of my head. GD says, long question with context. Last week, I asked if Kusal Mendes formed something related to being made captain two games in the World Cup. You said he was captain all along. Oh, you're right. It wasn't. Shanaka was, wasn't he? Um, uh it was first two games, and he had a strike rate of 160 and 180. Mendes was the second highest scorer in the Asia Cup uh, with two 90-plus scores and a strike rate of 105, 110, which is much more normal. Maybe it was role clarity or the Evan Goldbus effect that was responsible for his form spike in the first two games. And without Shanika, his role changed. We felt pressure. I, I, GD, I would almost never start with the captaincy affected him because we've done all the numbers and it just doesn't affect players, right? That's not to say it doesn't affect individual players at certain times, but overall, captaincy does not make you a better or a worse batter, right? 
It sometimes helps bowling around us, by the way, but that's a very weird side point. Um, those first two games, my memory is they played on two of the greatest batting wickets of all time. And it's interesting that you've gone into a long question with so much context and you've looked into it quite, quite deeply. The reason that I forgot about, I forgot about Shanika when you asked that question, but the reason that I pushed that question aside was because I saw the pitches that he was batting on, right? In one of those games, he was chasing 400. And so he went absolutely completely nuts because he had to. Really good batting wickets. He went for it. Um, it's, if you look at those strike rate of 105 to 110, it's also very possible from the end of the Asia Cup until that point, he was in really good form and then his form dropped. Right, you. I think you're looking for psychological reasons when cricket reasons probably uh, make a little bit more sense here. Um, I would say that he was playing on some good wickets, had some really good form. His form dropped off a little bit, maybe failed once or twice, and he just lost the the mojo. These things happen. Thomas says, uh, "What do you think to finish proposals for ODIs? Forty overs, one ball restrictions for eight overs." <sighs> I've seen a lot of fast bowlers suddenly decide that we need one ball again didn't see i didn't see them all saying we needed one ball when the uh when people were taking wickets out of their ass with the two new balls at the top of the innings right um what if you make it 40 overs i think you would kill odi cricket forever because i think it's too close to t20 cricket i i personally think 40 overs is better than 50 overs and even i don't think that is a good move the one ball, who thinks that the one ball is going to improve one day cricket so that more people watch it, more sponsors get involved and the energy comes back? It's just, it's completely nostalgic nonsense. I'm sorry, it's utter bullshit. One day cricket has had some fantastic games over the last couple of years. Um, we've seen incredible performances at this World Cup at times. And it's a different game than it was with the one ball. I don't disagree with that, right? But the reason we went away from the one ball, and it wasn't one ball, of course, because we had to, is because the one ball was terrible. It didn't work. It, we had to have two balls because the first ball would fall apart. Why do people not remember that? One, one white ball will not last 40 overs. You would still need a secondary ball, which you wouldn't have prepared for a reverse swing anyway. So maybe you get some reverse swing, but to the 25 and the 35 over mark in this particular game that Finney's talking about, if, if you went about it, right? But you'd also get people not hitting as many boundaries because the ball's soft and crap. Why do you want that? Why do we want part-timers bowling rubbish deliveries again, right? Why do we want a brown, gray chunk of, of, of crap? Am I missing something? It has to be nostalgia. One day cricket is not much worse now. I, I, I would say one day cricket is more enjoyable now the way it is played because players attack a lot more in the middle because the ball is harder, right? Bowlers have to come up with different kind of things other than just one thing, which is we'll keep throwing the ball into the pitch over and over again and then hopefully it will reverse at the end um, and then we'll get a bunch of quick wickets. Bowlers have to come up, fast bowlers have to come up with, with different tactics. Spin bowlers are bowling much more at the death now than they ever did before, right? There's so many different things that is going on in this game. People haven't turned off one-day cricket because of reverse swing, because not all teams got the ball to reverse swing before, right? And reverse swing wasn't that exciting. I'm not saying it's not exciting. It, you know, If you could get the two new balls and reverse swing, I think it would be an improved product. I don't think you would suddenly have people tuning into bilateral ODIs again. I just don't get it. I, I, just, I just do not understand this fascination with this one part of the game. One day cricket has been having so many issues since T20 cricket have existed. It has nothing to do with the two new balls. People were already looking at another format that did the thing that one day cricket did, but better. Can we improve one day cricket? Of course we can. There are millions of different things we can do. The idea that people are going to start watching bilateral cricket again because we have one ball is the stupidest thing I have ever heard anyone say. And I have heard so many people suggest that it, that would be the case. It's just nostalgia because ODI cricket used to be played in a different way. That is all it is. I'm sorry. It's nonsense. Ali says, did you see the role of captain diminishing with the increased size of team management and analysts? Can a captain not just delegate all of its tactical responsibilities to the sports staff? How far, um, if feasible, um, are we from that scenario and format? It's absolutely impossible, Ali. It's absolutely, you cannot get enough messages onto the field. You cannot get them onto the field quick enough. Um, 
things change. The people off the field don't have access to stuff, information that is on the field. Without a micro, without a without an earpiece, this would be absolutely impossible. And I say that as an analyst, it's just not. Uh, and and you go in with preset plans, and you can you can get messages to players. But there are so many variables that a captain has to take into um, mind. The only way would be if the captain, and you probably almost have to be the vice captain in this case, was feeding back every bit of information back to the bench so that both sides had um, equal amount of information. And then you could have like a quarterback situation or like a point guard getting um, something from from their um, coach on the way through. Satchmo says, are Viv, Richards, are Viv Richards' best ODI innings superior to Maxwell's given that he faced better attacks and didn't use scoops, reverse scoops? just the conventional shots of his era. And no, that's a bizarre thing to think because Viv Richards would also love to have used those shots. They just didn't exist. Um, no, I don't think they're better um, uh, for, for that for those things. Did he face better attacks? Um, did he face better attacks? What are we basing that on? Like the Afghanistani attack was pretty good. Not, not too much the Dutch one. Um, uh, but the Afghanistani attack was pretty good. Um, the England attack that Viv Richards made his against would have been would have been England players who regarded um, who regarded ODI cricket as not as important, certainly not as important as the Afghanistani um, team did. Uh, both of them famously didn't take one day cricket particularly seriously. Uh, let's have a look at Neil Foster. Neil Foster was kind of a what a decent sort of average bowler. Certainly not a frontline bowler. Um, he was he was okay in ODI cricket, but um, not not a sensation. So who else did he face in that one? Um, Jeff Miller uh, was the offie. Uh, Jeff Miller was kind of like a bit of a, I suppose a bit of a bits and pieces offie at, at the international level. Um, again, not a terrible bowler, but he was he's not. I don't think Jeff Miller's like a better bowler than Muhammad Nabi, right? Um, Derek Pringle, again, in in there because he's an all-rounder, a good option as your sort of fourth slash fifth, fifth bowler, um, but not a not a fantastic uh, one-day bowler. Average thirty-eight, um, you know, a good defensive one-day bowler probably more than anything else. So how is that a better attack than um, Mujib, who's a specialist, um, Naveen, who's a strike bowler, um, uh, who else? Omazai, probably a little bit weaker than the others. Rashid, Nabi, and uh, Nur Ahmed was the other bowler. I don't know. Don't know if that ma- makes it. Set, um, you know, if I'm, I'm comparing Viv's best innings to Maxwell's best innings. So you've got a team who is full of white ball specialists who take the format really, really seriously. And then you've got a team of red ball cricketers who play a little bit of white ball cricket um, occasionally and don't take it all that seriously. Viv took it very seriously, but I'm not sure all the teams he went up against did. Um, Viv used the shots that were available and the, the the safety equipment that was available to him at that time. Maxwell used the safety equipment and the shots that were available to him at his time. Uh, so I don't think that really goes across. I think what is interesting is that Viv Richards managed to make 189 against, uh, you know, one of the stronger teams in one-day cricket at that time. Certainly, while I don't think it was a massively stronger bowling attack than Afghanistan, you still had Willis and Botham and Pringle, you know, proper experienced players um, uh, out there, uh, you know, going up against, and they wouldn't have wanted Viv Richards. And, and also, they were taking wickets at the other end, right? So they would have wanted to finish that off. But um, I think there are arguments that you can make that Viv Richards is better than Glenn Maxwell's innings, and there are arguments you can make that Maxwell is better than um, Viv's innings. But I don't think what you, the the... What you've come up with there is really that kind of an argument. Uh, Let me just take a quick break. uh, And after the break, we'll come back with uh, more of your questions from Patreon and then from the chat. Get ready to take charge of your favorite leagues in Wicket Cricket Manager. Control the game, buy and sell players, and train them to victory. Play against friends, strangers, or challenge yourself. With your cricket knowledge, become the master on the pitch of Wicket Cricket Manager. All right. Uh, We did that to most questions, didn't we? Uh, Cam says, what? Who do you pick in ODIs and then T20s? Meg Lanning, Charlotte Edwards, or Matali Raj? Uh, we pick Meg Lanning in all three. I, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, unless you want Charlotte Edwards as a very occasional off-spin bowling. Um, I think in test matches, it would be maybe, oh, I'd have to go through the numbers, but I would have thought Matali. Well, Matali should have been the greatest test 
batter in women's cricket history. I don't know if her average quite bears that out, but I don't know how you get her out in a test match. Um, but yeah, in ODIs and T20s, I would have thought Meg is certainly number one. Um, maybe you might have Matali ahead of Charlotte Edwards, but I have to go through the records to, to be very fair. Um, there's a bit of format bleed probably in my brain on that one. Ben says, now can we put a full stop at the end of the paragraph of cricket history? Um, now that we can put a full stop at the end of the paragraph of cricket history, where does this England team um, since 2015 rank amongst the great white ball sides? I don't think we can because they've got a T20 coming up. They've won the last T20. And I'm not sure I've seen other teams catch up to them in T20 the way I have in ODI cricket. Now, in the next year, those things could change. Um, but I don't think we can put a full stop at the end of it. It's certainly, they're not quite on the level of the great Australian team and the great West Indian teams. But at the moment, they certainly deserve to be in that tier just below those two teams. I think that's fair. Um, the interesting thing is, depends on how you look at white ball as well, because because they won a World Cup in both. Um, not that that was about, you know, Australia and West Indies probably would have won those as well, but that wasn't available at that time. I think it's, it's a little bit more interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I am ready, Ben, to put the full stop in, if we're being honest. Not for T20. One day cricket, um, certainly, I think other teams have caught up. I think we're all um, seeing that. Aditya says, which was the more impressive tournament performance? Kenya in 2003 versus Afghanistan in 2023. Uh, Afghanistan in 2023, they didn't have any teams uh, walk away. Uh, what they did was much more repeatable. Um, you know, Kenya was a bit of a shit show that fell, fell together at the right time. Some fantastic cricketers and everything else. But they were very reliant, I think, on a, on, on a smaller group of cricketers. Whereas I think Afghanistan, they've got a really solid 11. So I think that's more impressive. But Kenya did it from nowhere, right? So the Kenyan players almost went on strike before that because they, they didn't trust the Kenyan board to pay them. They were not professional cricketers. Uh, Asif Kareem was brought, brought along to basically broker a peace deal between the players um, and the board. Um, he was in retirement. Like, it was a shambles. And then they played some magnificent cricket um, and did very, very well. But Afghanistan was more impressive as a team than what Kenya was in that World Cup. Sandip says, what does Sri Lanka cricket board need to do to remove the ICC ban? How hard would it be? Well, they asked for it. <laughs> um, you know, that basically what, what the Sri Lankan board was trying to do is buy themselves some time. What was going on in Sri Lankan politics with them as a board was untenable. And so they pulled the panic button to bring in the, the you know, to, to basically, and we've seen this before, you know, um, teams have done this before in order to give themselves a chance to, um, what's the best way of putting it? Give themselves a break from the politics for a moment so they can actually try and fix the issues that are there. Um, ICC will re uh, remove the, the ban quite easily. I'm assuming there will be a some sort of evaluation into the SLC done by Sri Lankan government, but it won't be in that ridiculous, over-the-top, heavy-handed way um, that was about to happen, but it will still go ahead. But there might be some more independence there rather than just the sports minister wants to do this and the prime minister wants to do this. Like it needs to be more sensible than that. Um, they were getting pulled around and I'm not saying the SLC have done well or anything, but it was about to go really, really poorly for everyone involved. Th what they've done is just pulled the handbrake on. They're, they're now currently there. They've stopped skidding. Um, you know, they've come to a stop. They might be facing the wrong way on the freeway, but they're at least not out of control right at this moment. They will be able to get the, um, it's, it's not as, it's, I think there was, the outcry was that the ICC had suspended them and they hadn't suspended other people. But when you actually start to dig into this even a little bit, you do realize that, and it's not the first time, boards, cricket boards use this as a way of getting the politics out of them for a moment so that they can reset. I think the ICC will let them back in without any issue. I don't think there'll be any long-term ramifications for this. But perhaps it's a wake-up call to the Sri Lankan politicians who are being ridiculous with the way that they have run cricket all the way through and certainly right up until this moment. Philip says, if you're able to design your perfect ball and we're able to somehow overcome the limitations of your time, what would you design it to do in each format? I thought he meant my perfect delivery then, and that would be an outswing of the seams back in for another day, apparently. Uh, would you keep it red or go to pink for test cricket? Swing for X amount of time. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. 
Uh, I would make it pink. So I, w- if I was making a perfect ball, I would make it so that it could be used in day and night. So it can't be red, right? It has to be another color if that is the case. Um, I would want it to have a seam that and uh, lacquer that allows the um, quick bowlers to be able to use it for you know the first 20 to 25 overs in a test match, but for it to remain hard so that it spins quickly for spinners all the way through, but maybe not necessarily with the lacquer on. Um, and then it has a natural degradation uh, that allows for it to reverse swing later on. Uh, in T20 cricket, I would want it to swing for six overs probably. And in, in one day cricket, I want it to swing for 10 overs probably. But again, the hardness is the most important thing for me. I want that ball to stay hard all the way because I want batters to be able to hit it. And I want spinners to be able to rip it quickly. I want bowlers to be able to bowl bounces with it. I don't want any ball that is going to go soft too early in the game. I don't mind if it degrades in other ways. I don't mind if it doesn't swing as much. I don't mind if spinners use the lacquer to skid the ball on earlier. And then later on, they can't get that advantage and everything else. I don't mind that natural degradation. Also, knowing that the seam is going to get flatter and flatter and, and all that, that's all fine. But I want that ball to stay as hard as long as possible because I don't think cricket with a softball is as exciting. I don't think it's as exciting to watch a batting. don't think it's, it's particularly helpful for seam bowlers. And I don't think it's particularly helpful for spin bowlers. So that would be my main thing if I was designing perfect perfect ball. And it would be, well, it can't be orange or yellow, can it? So I suppose pink is the most obvious other color that it can be, but maybe there's another color that works for day night. I mean, white is pretty good as well, but white gets dirty so, uh, quicker. So maybe pink does work better in that way. Uh, Jake says, could bilateral white ball cricket be made a little bit more relevant if teams stick to the type of years that ICC tournament uh, we now see are set for one per year? So England are going to the Caribbean for five T20s in December, which is sensible six months out from a World Cup. Uh, and then three, uh, and the three ODI is less so. So why not just play? Yeah. So this is this is a fair point. I've talked about this a lot. Like I don't really understand why out of cycle now you would do that. I don't think it's going to make. I don't think it's going to say bilateral cricket though, Jake. Uh, certainly in T20 in one day. I just don't. I I just think that T20 works better in a league format from a financial point of view, and bilateral ODI cricket just does not make the money back that it used to make. And it's expensive and people have to fly around a lot and all these sorts of little things about it. And it doesn't make the money back that even test cricket can make in certain situations. And if it keeps getting lower, it'll go well under test cricket. And it doesn't have the sponsorship attraction of test cricket. It doesn't have the, um, uh, the corporate, um, you know, like, you know, um, uh, uh, corporate sponsors buying things that test cricket has. Like there's a lot of things that it doesn't, it doesn't give you five days out of five days of, of content, you know, for the streamers, all those sorts of things. I don't think there's anything that can say bilaterals from that point of view. Um, uh, th- that's not to say that, well, I don't, I don't think bilaterals should exist outside of times when teams want to play them outside of a league. Like I think if you're going to do it, you have a one day league, you have a T20 league, but you, you, it, what you're saying that is completely true. You ramp them up at certain times before certain tournaments, which would make a lot more sense. But, None of those things are going to happen. Uh, that's the end of the Patreon. We'll take a quick break here. And then after the break, we'll come back with Wagon Wheel and we'll see if anyone's put any super chats in. I will definitely get to them. And uh, for everyone else who put a comment in, I'll try my best to answer them as well. I'm Jared Kimber. This is the Wagon Wheel. This is an ad. All right. Welcome back to the Wagon Wheel. I haven't had that many questions. And so if you are desperate for something to be answered, feel free to put them in. Um, and certainly if there's a super chat, I'll have plenty of time to talk about those. I've got about another 15 minutes. And Michael says, if ODIs are eventually to be phased out, do you think they will still be played by the women as their long format? No, I don't think so, Michael. Um, I've actually, I did have a conversation with someone, a, a cricket administrator, and we were trying to work out if it was possible that women's ODIs might go before men's. This was about two or three years ago. Um, and the reason that it hasn't happened, of course, is the test cricket argument where women don't play test cricket at all. So they kind of, you kind of want them to play one format that's a little bit longer. But I think if there's no men's 50 over cricket, especially the way that cricket is run, if women run women's cricket, you might actually keep the ODIs around. But being that women don't run women's cricket and it's run by the ICC, which is largely run by men, I would assume there would be a similar 
uh, phasing out of the women's game uh, than there would be for the men's. Pass says, were the four all-rounders from the 80s, Kappel, Imran, Ian, and Hadley, somehow fitter? It just seems like Hardik, Russell, Flintoff, Watto, Pollock, and Stokes are such injury-prone careers. Generally, all-rounders do have injury-prone careers. That's a fairly normal thing, and it makes sense because they're doing twice the work of everyone else. Um, I think cricket is a lot different now in that there were probably games and days when those cricketers that you're talking about there were not at 100%. And by that, I mean not that they weren't, not they were playing injured. They were certainly playing injured a lot more, but they weren't also given cotton wool treatment by their teams. And so they were probably bowling slower than they needed to bowl. Or, you know, maybe occasionally they would whack one up in the air quite quickly afterwards um, and go through that. I think now players play or at closer to their red zone more often. And that wasn't actually how cricket was always played because, you know, especially it's a, it's a hangover from county cricket, really. Um, but even the league cricketers had the same thing of playing, you know, th- uh, if you play 30 first class games a year, uh, which some of those cricketers di- uh, did, well, actually those cricketers didn't, but it, they off, off the back of that, uh, they would have had the John Player League and everything else. But this, I think it was the same amount of days in six months in England or seven months, whenever the schedule um, had, you didn't play all the time at your full tilt. Whereas international cricketers now play all the time at their full tilt. And so I do think there is a different, completely different strain um, on the bodies than we have seen. Um, I think also uh, uh, bowlers bowl faster now. So, you know, go back to uh, Richard Hadley. He was clocked at about 127, 128 kilometers an hour. I would have assumed Kapil Dev was around that similar speed um, as well. Uh, Both of them would have been around that similar speed. Imran's the only one there that was legitimately quick. And he was probably only, well, actually, no, he was legitimately quick for a, a decent amount. But he, and he probably was the one who got injured the most. I'm trying to think back. My memory is he wasn't always available. Um, so, uh, yeah, you certainly, uh, I think there's a big difference between bowling at 80 miles an hour and 90 and 95 miles an hour. And if you look at all the other guys you've got there, they are all faster, including Watson when he was young. You could bowl over you know, around 90 miles an hour. They could all, they're all a lot faster. So they're completely different kinds of specimens, I think. And you have to factor that in. But also cricket was just so much different in those days. And you, you know, and you played while injured a lot, but you also played at 85%. So if you go back and you talk to the old county cricketers, the really good ones. In fact, I had this conversation with Graham Swan. We were talking about the difference between international and county cricket one time. And and he was saying, yeah, but I bowled all these overs, blah, 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 and counter cricket. And I said, but Swanee, did you bowl those at 100%? And he was like, no, I probably bowled those at 85, 90% a lot of the time. And then, you know, when he, when he got a really good batter or someone was going for him, he would go up to 100%. A lot of people play. that was how cricket was played. Um, you didn't get as many people pushing themselves to the limit because also the financial gain wasn't as much, right? Like if you're Andre Russell, you got to push yourself until, like Andre Russell's, going to have to have replacement knees, right? Ben Stokes, uh, I don't know Ben Stokes' injury as well. He's going to have to have replacement knees. Sean Pollock probably already has replacement knees, right? That is uh, that is the level of which players push themselves all the time now, right? Not to say that old cricketers weren't like that as well, but there's definitely a very different amount of stress on your body, uh, the way that current cricket is played compared to the way it used to be played. Shafiuddin says, why are New Zealand fans and players happy reaching the semi or final of the cup? They should be target winning it all. What makes you think they're not? That's such a bizarre comment. It's like, oh, we're happy to be here. We'll see you guys later. What? Of course they want to win the final. I, I, don't, I don't even understand how that would enter your mind. That's just a weird narrative that people put on it because they always make the finals and don't win. Of course they uh, want to win the final, right? As, probably more so than some other teams because they've never won one. Srinath says, how much does home and away record actually matter in ODIs? I've seen many undermine uh, home and away records while comparing ODI batters. I would worry about it a lot less in T20 and ODI cricket than I would in test cricket just because pitches tend to be a little bit more um, bland right? In, in ODI cricket. So I'd probably be less interested in it. But there are certain players where it probably does make a difference, right? You know, there, there are... Certain players that, um, I, I think we saw this with the old generation of England players, they're actually quite good at playing ODI cricket in England because it was so different to everywhere else, right? Um, and that didn't transform overseas. And so you'd have players and you'd be like, well, their record's pretty good. And it's like, yeah, but 
the next World Cup's not going to be in England, so it's not going to help them. Um, uh, so I do think that is an issue, and, and I think that's fair to say. Um, uh, and, and, and I'm just picking England, but I would say there would be many players who'd be like that. I would factor home and away in far less with ODI cricket than I would with any, uh, and T20 cricket than I would with other formats. But, you know, there are certain players who are better in certain conditions. That's still going to be the case in one-day cricket. Nazal says, will we ever see an action as freakish as Murali Duran's that replicates his effectiveness? We will certainly see actions that are as freakish as him. I think we've seen them since. Um, hello, Lassif Malinka. Replicates his effectiveness. No, it, I mean, what? Take 800 wickets in test cricket? <laughs> um, that's unlikely. I do think we'll see other freakish actions, yeah. Um, you know, ba and baseball still has a similar um, thing to that. And basketball's just had this really weird thing. I think it's the Korean or Japanese basketball where free throw shooters are throwing the ball off the backboard uh, when oh, shooting. Like sports are continually coming up with new ways of evolving, right? And new ways of doing things. And, um, you know, the, in the NFL, you used to have guys who ran the ball and guys who caught the ball. Now there's, you know, an overlap in those sorts of positions. And, you know, so sports will continue to do all, and, you know, used to have quarterbacks who didn't run. Now you have quarterbacks who run all these sorts of different things. So cricket will be no different. And freakish actions are an advantage. If you'll, what, I think what you're really asking is, will you ever get another freakish action um, that with a bowler as good as Muralee Duran? Well, you might not get another bowler as good as Muralee Duran, freakish action or not. But you could make an argument that, Kumble and Warren were quite freakish in what they did as well, right? Um, so it's it's very common to be a great spinner who does something that is a little bit different to other people um, to begin with. Shrinath says, have we seen a more dominating performance than Biv Richards and ODIs in the 80s in any format of cricket ever, uh, excluding Bradman? Um, you would have to put in Sid Barnes and George Lohman, I suppose, because even though their bowling averages are ridiculous, um, not everyone had bowling averages like that. And Sid Barnes is, is even more interesting. I do think if you split it up between Australia and South Africa, his bowling average does fall apart a little bit, but he was still, it's not that the Australians didn't say he wasn't great. They also said he was great. Um, Les Ames as a wicketkeeper. So Les Ames averages 43. I'm gonna. Have to, I, I can't not know that number. He averages forty point six, and I believe there was one other wicketkeeper pre-war who averaged over thirty, which I think was a South African wicketkeeper. Um, so he was twenty-five percent better than any other wicketkeeper um, had ever been. You know, we'll never. I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. Um, Try to think if there's any other sort of individual cases. I would say that those are the main ones that come to my head. Sid Barnes, Les Ames, obviously Bradman, who you mentioned, Viv Richards. Um, yeah, those are the... And I wonder if you... No, I think those are the main ones um, that come to mind when you ask that question. Really interesting question, though. Uh, but yeah, uh, for those who don't know, Viv, was, Viv, Viv basically has Rohit Sharma's numbers, but did it 40 years earlier. It's... Just remarkable uh, how much better he was than everyone else in terms of average and in terms of strike rate. Uh, Carl says, do you think New Zealand have been holding back Chapman's bowling for this game? Another left arm spin. I've been wondering about that a lot. I mean, I'm not sure whether white ball Chapman's a worse spinner than Ravindra, but I think you've got, because you've got Ravindra and you've got Sandler, I just it doesn't make sense to use him, right? It just makes a lot more sense to use uh, Phillips. That would be my assumption, uh, you know, that why they have done it. Um, I don't think it's, uh, you know, Chapman's okay. I, like, he can rip the ball. He, he, has, he, he can spin it, and he can be an interesting bowler. But I don't know if he's better than Ravindra, but I also don't know if he's worse than Ravindra as a white ball bowler. Certainly in red ball cricket, I would say I'd have Ravindra well above him. Uh, Darshan says, oh, no, he doesn't, because I haven't put the comment up. Should the ICC try a new ODI format in the Champions Trophy to make it more interesting? 40 overs, new ball at the 20 over mark, and bowling cap still remaining 10 overs. I mean, Darshan, if you go back, I did a whole video on how we could revolutionize one day cricket and make it more interesting. I don't think anything you've said there, uh, I might have done the 40 over one, but I don't think anything you've said there is um, 
I did, and I think the new new ball later on thing I mentioned a little bit in a different way, and the bowling cap. I think all those three I've mentioned before. So I would agree with you because they're ideas that I've already shared. I, I I like that. You know, you see in baseball and you see in um, uh, basketball is another sport that's done this. I think football might have done this. Where top level competition sometimes they try out other things. Um, in order to improve the sport, you could do stuff like that at the Champions Trophy. I'm kind of with you. Whether it saves ODI cricket, right? I don't know. Whether it saves the Champions Trophy, I don't know. Is it something worth going to the broadcasters and go, how about we keep it? We want to keep it as one day. And I don't know if they do, but let's say they do. We want to keep it as one day. But what if we did all this stuff? Would the broadcasters be like, okay. As long as they're good, strong cricket things, and all those three that you've come up with are good, strong cricket things. It's not like you hit a ball into the crowd and you get a, a you next ball you get to fart um, a distance, and if whatever that distance is that you fart the ball out of your ass, you get that amount of runs. Right? That's the stuff broadcasters hate. That was a big thing with the hundred when they tried to take away the LBW, and the broadcasters were like, "That's a terrible idea. Don't do that." Um, as long as it stays as cricket and it doesn't become too gimmicky, I think it's an interesting uh, way of looking at it. I still work. I, I, I like 40 over cricket more and I I would still suggest it just because people like me and Stephen Finn like it. I worry about it if you make 40 over cricket and then you've got 20 over cricket just from that perspective. Unless you make 40 over cricket so different to what the 50 over game used to be, then I'm a bit more on your on, on your side. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't see any downsides to this, right? But I also don't know why they would do it. Unless it's just a cheap marketing gimmick and then they hope that it works and maybe it does and good, good luck to them. Um, but why not? I, I, at this stage, I would say that Champions Trophy is probably 50-50 going to be a T20 tournament, right? I would say this is a better idea in the short term. But if this works, then we have to, then we have to change all of one-day cricket, which I also think is a good idea. So I'm kind of even more on board, right? But it feels like a very progressive step for what is not always a very progressive um, sport. Um, so I don't see them doing it. But yeah, I mean, in some ways it's my ideas coming back to me. Um, and so I'm 100% on board from that point of view. Um, anytime you can uh, tell me my ideas uh, in a slightly different way, I'm going to agree with you. Unless I've forgotten what those ideas are and they make me angry. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, of Wagon Wheel. I know it's on for two shows in a row. So I know so many of you uh, came back and and, and certainly uh, were in the, the chat. So Sam Kitt and Tina and TRD and whatever and Anish and Sri Ram. Uh, but thank you very much. Um, oh, actually, I'm just going to do one last question because I get asked this all the time. Sri Ram says, can ODI be kept alive with more quadrangular and triangular tournaments with one associate? country in, in the mix. What you have just described, Sri Ram, is literally bankruptcy. They didn't work. They got worse and worse. People, it, it only would work if everyone was in the same time zone. If everyone was in the same time zone, triangular and quadrangular would be absolutely great. But they don't particularly work um, because home audiences won't watch away teams um, play in neutral games. Um, and you still have to spend as much money as putting them on it's just an absolute non-goer. You could look at small tournaments every now and again um, to do other things. And then if you threw an associate nation in, you're not going to make any money off the TV rights. So you're actually making less money there. Anyway, that's, that's it for me today. Uh, thank you to everyone who was in the comments and everything as well. If you're listening on a podcast player, if you have a chance to review the podcast, please do. Um, you know, But sharing, liking, subscribing, ticking all the things that whatever your podcast player does, all these things are really, really helpful to me. Um, but thank you very much to everyone. And uh, we'll be back in, uh, I'll be doing a Red Inca. I'm going to have to try and do a Red Inca tomorrow night, actually. Or maybe we might sk skip Red Inca, actually. We might change the order of the podcast this week, revolutionary, uh, just because of when they are and when they're going to come out. But uh, thanks to everyone for their support. And I'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. 
but we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti Sainapaya and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. If you are a podcaster who happens to waffle on and you need a way to cut down your long-form content, Memento FM is here to save the day. They turn your lengthy media into bite-sized chunks for even the most time-starved audience. Start using Memento FM today.